Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Boy Choir, Babadook, Still Alice, 71, and more. Oh, Kazoo Fest is taking place uh, this week, and there are shows at the E-Bar, including No Joy, Last X, and Masks on April 9th, and Home Shake, John McKeel, and Bass Lions on April 10th. And on Sunday, April 19th at Harcourt United Church, Michael Harris reads from Party of One about Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper and this country's radical makeover. The Bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. Creative Control with Beach Comic. On this episode, a candid conversation with visual artist Sherry Boyle, who lives in Toronto but is internationally renowned. She is coming to Kazoo Fest this week uh, with a film, and I wanted to talk to her about that and her whole trajectory. I'm fascinated by Sherry Boyle. We have a lot of mutual friends, um, and I enjoy her work, and I just wanted to talk to her. So that's all I have to say. This is myself, Sherry Boyle, talking about art and yoga, I think. I can't remember what else we talked about. Lots of stuff. It was, it's good. Me and Sherry Boyle. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerotti, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444. For pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Get ready for Kazoo Fest 2015, taking place throughout Guelph between April 8th and 12th. 
Musical acts include Deerhoof, Home Shake, Last X, Fedre, Scott Merritt, Tyvek, Lido Pimienta, Absolutely Free, Jeffrey Lewis, and many, many more. There will be art by Sherry Boyle and Jen E. Norton, plus dance, print, multimedia, and much more. Visit kazookazoo.ca for ticket and schedule info, and do not miss Kazoo Fest in Guelph this April. a tremendously gifted and world-renowned Canadian visual artist who calls Toronto home. While it's not quite possible to easily describe the breadth of her work, it's fair to say she has spent a great deal of time exploring the figure, inspired by her concerns about and interest in class and gender injustice. She's examined a range of psychological and emotional states via sculpture, drawing, painting, installation, performance, and handmade craft, create a singular body of work. Boyle represented Canada with her project Music for Silence at the 55th Venice Biennale in 2013, and on Saturday, April 11th, between 2 and 5 p.m. at Boarding House Arts slash Capacity 3 Gallery in Guelph, Kazoo Fest is holding a reception for Boyle's film Silent Dedication. Here to discuss this and possibly more things is Sherry Boyle. Hi, Sherry. How are you? Hi, Vish. I'm pretty good. How are you doing tonight? I'm pretty well. I'm pretty well. Where in the world are you? I'm sitting on my cozy couch, surrounded by homemade Afghans. What? Waiting what? for not the Afghan dog, although that would be amazing <laughs> if I had a whole fleet of twelve long-haired Afghans all lying around me on this couch. But that's—I've never had a pet, so right would be an imagination. Really, it's just. Um, blankets that Steve's mom made and oh, some nice. village blankets that are all really cozy and we just came home from yoga. Oh man that's that's. I wish I had gone to yoga. Was it good? Do you feel good? It was really good. There's this new pay what you can yoga just steps away from our house so it can't get more convenient and kind of uh, easy which is what I need for kind of, you know, exercise regimes. And it's just like three to five people go. And it's in this really strange weightlifting kind of room, like physiotherapy weightlifting room that smells like off-gassing rubber and kind of, you know, machines. It's very masculine. Those those kinds of spaces... Or they have space. That's why I think they're, they, they're utilized for things like yoga. Yeah, it's fantastic. So in the nighttime is the right time for yoga. <laughs> just like three or four people come and we just hang out and, you know, stretch and stuff. It's really cool because Steve's never, that's my boyfriend. 
and uh, he's <laughs> I won't go into who that guy is but he hasn't done yoga before and as it turns out we've discovered that he's like missing two or three vertebrae the ones that allow you to bend forward at the waist <laughs> he doesn't seem to be able to do that right yeah I've got the same sort of affliction I don't think I'm missing vertebrae but I have a herniated disc so bending and Oh, that'll mess you up. Stretching is weird. I just got made fun of for doing yoga in a. I participated in a in a hockey tournament, an ice hockey tournament, uh, in the Good Time Hockey League of the Arts. So, right in the name of the league, you get the impression that this isn't hardcore hockey necessarily. But, but they're making fun of you for doing yoga. Yeah, that's what I was. That's where I was is going. Is that a good time? No. They no, weren't. I don't think so. That sounds like bad time hockey. Well, we were playing two games a day for a guy who hasn't played hockey at all in like five, six, seven years. I don't know what it's been. And so I, and my back had sort of gone out recently, like not out, out, but just like I could feel it. So I, before and after was doing some yoga stretches and they gave me the gears. That is the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> you know what you do when they do that next time, Vish? You grab the bottom of their sweater and you yank it up over their head and then beat the shit out of them. No, 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 no. That's sinking to <laughs> oh, their... Oh, no, sorry, that's right. It's, it's good time hockey. Sink into their level. Actually, it worked out well. My uh, my teammate... <laughs> the yoga mat I meant. Yeah. Like, beat them over the head with a soft yoga mat. <laughs> my teammate, Harry Palm, also started to engage in yoga. We are two his guys. That, so that Palm. kind of shut them up a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he's doing yoga and not some other kind of nocturnal activities oh you don't know yeah harry palm is i know it's a ridiculous name on some level but that's his name and he he is like a punk rock guy he was in the first wave of toronto punk playing playing in bands and stuff so he's like got a he's got the arts background and he's like a he's a sailor now he sails all the time are you serious a competitive sailor yeah He's like a punk rock sailor. He's like, man, I got all these tattoos. What else can I do? He's basically, it sounds like his hero was Popeye. I mean, <laughs> yeah, totally. that seems to be where he, his awesome. life had brought him. Yeah. Right on. I wanted to ask, first of all, I noticed that, were you at, were you in Venice in 2013? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. Two whole years ago. Huh. I thought it was more recent than that. That seems... Yeah, no, it seems like a million years ago and just yesterday, but what's fantastic is that it's happening again this year, and uh, there's three really wonderful and hilarious and awesome artists from Quebec, BGL or BGL, Mm -hmm. that are going to be making a project, and they've been super busy the last year scheming to throw it together, and so that whole kind of press work engine has started to go around in its little circle again, and they're off to the races, and I... Look forward to hearing about what they're going to do, and God forbid I'm not going to go to see it, but I, I really will enjoy looking at the images and giving them big congrats when I see them next. Wait a minute. As the last representative from Canada to, to head to the Biennale, are you somehow connected to the 2015 uh, edition? No, well, man. You're just like, it's like a big meat grinder. You're in, you're out. Okay. All right. Now, some... <laughs> it's like a big meat grinder. Is there... What can yesterday's you yesterday's sausage? <laughs> what what can you tell people who are not familiar with this Biennale? This is a it's it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal that you were selected to do this uh, a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. It's not a career um, goal that I was aiming myself towards or ever imagining that I would be selected. I think I was a bit of a dark horse in a way to be selected because it's. Um, 
you know, a really huge international event that tends to uh, draw names that are already quite internationally established. Um, and there's about 55 countries that participate, and every country typically has a single artist to do a project for that year. But often there's group exhibitions that are curated or different kind of unconventional strategies that countries might kind of propose as a way to represent their nation, but that's a very contentious thing. And there's all sorts of, you know, controversy around the idea of representing a nation because what an absurd idea, but Hmm. anyways, yeah, big deal. It's, you know, whatever, like, has all sorts of associated assumptions and status and privilege and all that business around it. And um, it's just the most amount of crazy amount of work that you could ever imagine taking on in a person's life. So it has a, a, a big attendant exhaustion and, and a huge amount of expectation as well. And you work with a big giant team to make it happen. And there's all these logistics that have to be dealt with. And then you do the project and, and, it's up for six months and then it's down. But is it competitive? No, although the media, because everybody's always hungry for a story and no one knows what art is in this country, they're totally confounded by it. So they need to have a competitive metaphor because we're a sports country and that's kind of the only culture that the mainstream folks kind of under, seem to understand. Or So they call it the Olympics of the art world, but it's not the Olympics of the art world. It's not a competitive uh, sport. It's uh, just people making art projects and it's more like a survey of um, contemporary art across the world and you know there's all sorts of countries involved that people don't even in the west here think about very much because we're all very self-absorbed and you know kind of new york centric or something when it comes to contemporary art so there's africa and asia and india and all sorts of like all the different continents are represented in different kind of cities and places and countries and rural like all sorts of folks from everywhere in the world are are exhibiting okay uh, Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so they're competing against each other, they're just more like perhaps uh, that year they're doing something under the banner name of whatever country they're from. But okay, so there's that aspect, and then the Biennale occurs every two years. Mm. The Olympics occurs mostly every four years. Did some genius just say countries are involved? It happens every couple of years. It's like the Olympics. Is that how this conflation happened? Yeah, I wonder. It's been going on for. I, I wish I could remember now the exact date, but a very long time, like a hundred years at least. So, and it it started out kind of like in that World Fair model, you know, where where uh, countries would come together and display the finest of their artisanal crafts and inventions, um, and then it kind of uh, turned into a contemporary art thing. I think in the fifties, like Peggy Guggenheim got involved, and a lot of different people with money that were interested in. Uh, the arts after kind of sec- World War II and that market, I guess, but also it used to be a real painting thing. And that's, you know, because art mostly used to be a painting thing. Right, right. Um, but the, uh, why it's a biennial, I don't know, except it takes a good, like, year or two to organize. That's just a massive um, huh. venture. There's so much architecture. There's so mu- so many people involved, thousands of people, thousands of people, and so much money that has to be raised and to make it happen. And, and I think just logistically, it requires that amount of time in between. Sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, now, earlier, you kind of characterized your own involvement 
in this thing to be sort of anomalous or surprising to yourself. You suggested that most of the artists involved have some are internationally renowned, and I kind of took your tone to suggest, you know, like, that's not me, but you are someone who has exhibited your work all over the world by now, right? Well, not all over the world. I've had some select um, exhibitions, group shows, or whatever that I've been involved internationally, but not, I haven't had a ton of, like, solo exposure. I don't have an international commercial gallery, never had had, oh, have, I had see that it. representation. I haven't gone to an international grad school. I have traveled extensively, and I've performed internationally more than I've exhibited my art. Um, those are the, you know, my performance work is part of my practice, but it's just a little bit of a different program than, uh, having a kind of curated exhibition in a gallery for your work. So, um, yeah, I actually don't have that big of a reputation okay. outside of Canada. I have done, you know, a fair amount of things, but not in a singular way. So I definitely kind of entered that platform as a relative unknown so how, Whereas, does, how does a relative unknown uh, i wish i had your i don't have your site up in front of me because it, it sort of details all the places your work has been exhibited and where i think where you've been as well and it's it's yeah. a it's, it seems like a, a like your passport would be relatively full from that kind of traveling but it is, but you know what? Maybe when I speak about this, it seems in, uh, disingenuous or something, but I think it, it's because I've been exposed to such, especially like through Venice and through other experiences in my travels, I've been exposed to such a high level of international kind of art world. Like I've really felt like a spy on it, you know. I've, I haven't been, other than Venice, I haven't really ever play, uh, played a central role, but I've been around it. So when I speak about my kind of uh, exhibition or like whatever, like my reputation internationally, like it's very relative. I mean, compared to many artists in Canada, I have been uh, out there internationally, but compared to say the, you know, artists that's going to be exhibiting at the Pompadour or like the, you know, the British pavilion in Venice, like I'm completely like, they would imagine me like as some rural <laughs> backwater kind of, you know, whatever Sunday painter or something in terms of what, like how much I've been out there, what okay. who I'm affiliated with, what galleries know me. Like I'm, it's really quite a, a wide spectrum of uh, exposure and mm -hmm. I'm on the quiet end in that scene. How like, does, how does, how does an artist like yourself end up in any kind of, network particular i mean you you end up doing gallery exhibitions in certain places and then certain other people see it is it as simple as that like how do you you, you say that your 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 success is, is relatively modest but uh, as far as i can tell you as, as you even mentioned it's potentially you've done you've accomplished a bit more than some of your contemporaries have how does beyond your sheer skill and talent how does that uh, occur from your perspective um i think when it comes to my case, I just have to say sheer perseverance and and really diverse, prolific um, work. I've just been working at it for so long and I've had a presence in the city and in Canada for so long that it just started to kind of add up to a vision that people could recognize. Um, I think a big part of it, I mean, at, at first the trajectory of, of – 
my work being recognizable was took a long time because of it being so diverse. I mean, I'm performing, I'm making sculpture, I'm drawing, I'm painting, um, making installations and even doing super eight film and different types of film. And so I think at first people were just like, wow, it's all over the place and who like not really noticing it maybe because of that. But after a while it just starts to kind of build and build until it's a bit of a universe. Um, and for me, I didn't do it in a like more typical or conventional way in that I didn't establish any contacts or networks through grad school, which is a very foundational kind of strategy mm-hmm. now for contemporary artists. They go, they pick a very, you know, like hopefully prestigious or kind of name related grad school. And then they work with people they admire and they make really good connections and you know, hopefully in a city that has like a cultural currency, which would be New York or LA or Berlin or somewhere like that, you know. Uh, maybe Vancouver, and then like depending on how ambitious they are, and they make their connections that way, they stay in that larger city, that international city, and then they just start to kind of work really hard, right? But I didn't do that. I stayed in Toronto. I traveled independently. I wasn't doing residencies. I'd just go on my own dime, you know? I'd work work part-time jobs and just kind of do things very independently and out of a different ethos than than some of my contemporaries or my peers because I'd shied away from institutional homogeny. I just didn't like, I never liked institutions or schools that much. I went to school. I graduated from OCAD. I went to art high school and I had some pretty formative experiences, but I didn't, I really was interested in the unique voice, the kind of idiosyncratic voice. And I really felt like I'd have to be very independent and work a lot of solitary hours to develop that. And it would take me a long time. So I was always in it for the long haul. I didn't have any patience. Mm. And I was kind of just as an earlier, just a bit of an earlier generation before the real art school kind of mandate where I did feel like, oh yeah, I'm going to have to put in my time because this is a life that I've committed to as almost like a, like a, I don't know. I would. I hesitate to say kind of a religion, but like a real like a commitment to a worldview, and a politic and a lifestyle that did, wasn't about like going to grad school, finding an agent, getting famous, trying to make a lot of money, going to the art fairs, like doing you know some kind of prescriptive yeah. thing. Sometimes people can cynically feel happens with young artists because there's been so much fame and money that has been celebrated in the field. I kind of came from a little bit of an early gen- earlier generation where it was like, this is a quiet and slow dedication and commitment that you will develop over the course of your life. And a big part of it will be about learning about yourself and the better you and deeper you learn about yourself, the more you will have to say. So it became like a more solitary or private thing. Anyways, I've just worked really hard and long, and I think sooner or later people started to recognize that what I was doing was um, was original. I've always had a very strong attachment to the idea of having an original voice, which just kind of goes back to what I just said about learning about myself and being very true to just my own self and not to trends or to kind of what was happening outside. I want to, I want to speak to this idea of originality within a body of work, uh, in a moment. Um, but I do want to call back to your discussion of this perseverance and this preservation of an independent spirit versus any kind of conformity, because I don't necessarily think that those 
aspects mean that you're not a good collaborator, right? You you do tend to collaborate a lot with people. No, well, I mean, it's it's I, I actually have a real kind of split in my practice in that I I need a lot of private time just as a personality. I'm I'm kind of a hugely sensitive person that gets overwhelmed easily by too much social. Um, or too much stimulation. So I have managed that by spending just a lot of time alone. And that discipline and quiet has helped me kind of keep uh, a handle on some of my, you know, more difficult parts of my personality, which can be depression and anxiety and stuff like that, which is, you know, my work has gone a huge way to helping me cope with that and process it in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes my honesty around that stuff has led to people, um, you know, feeling safe and also identifying with what I do because I feel like there's a lot of people in the world that that um, experience these things, you know, so uh, we share that stuff together. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of collaboration, I also have this other side of myself that's a real performer and I, you know, I have a lot of relationship to music in particular. And when I was in my teens, I was uh, not only pursuing uh like music theater because I was really interested in drama, but also because I was going to this art high school that had an amazing drama and visual art program, but also I discovered like kind of hardcore and punk hmm. and all sorts of other types of music, but that the aggression and the kind of subversive, you know, I don't, I, nonconformist, like whatever thing, it just kind of really dovetailed into what I was going through as a person at that time in my life and really appealed to me. So I got involved with that and was playing music, uh, singing in a band for, you know, six years or something when I was really young. And through that, I just developed this huge love and for music. It was a fork in the road for me. I mean, I, I knew I was going to pursue visual art as my main uh, yeah, life yeah. and I didn't want to kind of do music badly because I had so much respect for it so I let it go and I ended up just incorporating music into my projects all the time in the form of collaborating with my friends which most of them were musicians and what was your band was this band in Toronto yeah it was Scarborough like I grew up in Scarborough and then I went to school at this place called Wexford which is a really fantastic high school on the kind of the edge of Scarborough a great uh, place where all the kind of freaks of the region uh, washed up you know so I met some amazing people and we put a band together it was called we were bad life at first we were then we were rated x and then we became liquid joy <laughs> that went on for years and it was really fun it was just super fun kind of amazing thing to do with some dear friends and I was involved with a bunch of other different bands that were all playing at the same time and all these different like small underground shitty clubs around Toronto you know right. so it's really just about going out to shows going, participating going out to shows like really kind of everybody welcome everybody you know you kind of watched your friend show and then you got up on stage and you did a show and they watched you it was just you know how it is and what kind of what was it that drew you to hardcore and punk in particular well, those are the friends that I met in high school in grade nine immediately. That was the people that I was gravitating towards was like, wow, what are these kids with mohawks? Who's what are those leather jackets? What are the bands listen to? Because I came from a really, really conventional, uh, deep kind of East Scarborough neighborhood where there was just nothing like that in my cultural life I'd ever witnessed before. There's I had no exposure to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
But um, so immediately I was just because I kind of identified as an outsider as a very young age and I was bullied and I was kind of a weirdo in my family. So I always knew that there was just something different about me. So when I saw these kids that were truly actively courting difference, it really appealed to me in such a liberating and kind of empowering and fascinated way. So they introduced me to the music and the what really was appealing to me was not only the kind of grand romance that I felt in that music but also like the kind of controlled violence where we were allowed to kind of express all the rage that we felt as kids often around our families and the kind of cultures or societies that we felt were repressing and oppressing us yeah but we did so in this there was this there was a real kind of etiquette involved that i love that was like looking out for each other so you kind of got to form a tribe and I never had the experience of having a tribe culturally you know I never felt I felt really like uncultured and nothing that I could belong to that had any ritual or kind of song or or like anything involved that I could repeat and and enact you know and make myself feel like I belonged and this this was a really interesting time and kind of history in the suburbs of Scarborough because there was a lot of scary stuff going on with gang violence and kind of in the punk scene itself there's this like thing with punks and skins that were at war with each other and there's these there's like neo-nazism going on with some skinheads in that area right and so we were the punks that were against that and you know and then there was also all that amazing stuff coming out where reggae was starting to come up like for in the same kind of space in the mind as this more like hardcore music and so then of course bad brains burst onto our small scene and we all freaked out and and it was just this kind of like embracing of some kind of multicultural sexual like identity free space to like be a freak and embrace the freaks but also with with all this rage that we felt we could go out onto the dance floor and like freak out on each other but at the same time if you fell over someone was always some hand was always sweaty hand was always going to pull you back up on your feet yeah so you're kind of enacting these social rituals that you in a really base primal way but you're also kind of you get to be tribal but you get to kind of assert your politics of like you know this is the way we want the world to be not the way our parents had it not the way we see it out there and in other things that we really go against and blah 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 so it's just it was very young too like you're totally I was so naive and I was so like idealistic and ignorant a lot too, right? Was but, there was there a point where you as you grew older you came to reject any of that ethos or does that ethos does a refined version of that ethos still you know pervade your work and pervade your life? Yeah, it does. I mean it and it, it does and it kind of it kind of sets me apart. I think that there's something in my work that always uh, will be a little bit unique because of that background I have, and as everybody's work is unique because of the backgrounds they have. Like, mm-hmm. so that's mine, and that's something that's, you know, there's a lot of class struggle in my work, right? And that's part identified with that period of my life and that form those years, right? But. Um, I've never rejected it, but at times it's it's uh, at times it's been like this amazing platform for me to be liberated, and at times it's felt, you know, maybe constraining and and making 
life difficult for myself. <laughs> Maybe like <laughs> almost like any ethos, uh, yeah. any parameter, uh, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, like it is. It is uh, that kind of like nonconformist. You always have to be original, and you always have to like stick it to the man. That that's uh, it's just so deeply ingrained in me. <laughs> and I have no problem with that. It's just it doesn't make life like super easy, right? And sometimes yeah. you just got to relax and and learn to enjoy like some pleasant small talk. <laughs> I want to touch upon this uh, idea of originality because you brought it up earlier and it does seem to be something that drives you, uh, something that, that keeps you moving. Uh, struggling, uh, maybe not struggling, but at least trying to be conscious of the idea of always producing work that's original and i don't know does that <clears throat> does that um sort of desire does that desire kind of is it manifested in the fact that you've worked in so many different mediums are you almost competing with yourself every time you finished a project like i've got to move on and do something original and and that means original from something i've done before you know what i mean like yeah I've, well yeah i think that that is about growth right like i, I you never uh, artists have like primary concerns in terms of themes I feel and that just comes out of the individual like there's going to be certain things that we're always grappling with as people that we keep going back to and pushing that button or touching it right and a lot of artists and writers have spoken about that you know everybody has kind of one or two major subjects that they just circle around their entire life yeah. so I feel like there's always going to be like there's subjects in my work and life that are always going to be incredibly charged that that you know, there's just an endless amount of possibility for me and need and urgency to go back to them and explore them as deeply as I can while I'm here on the planet. But in terms of materials, and I'm a person of images, like I'm deeply invested in, in the image. And so there's the, like how that manifests and what materials I use and, and also how I innovate the combination of images and the materials, uh, the, or the pro like the kind of process of how I want to create those images or those, you know, kind of scenes that I make, that is something that I always want to keep pushing to in invention so that I grow. I, I obviously just want to keep growing, but that's also just cause I need to keep my mind alive. And I also have a, um, like I get bored easy. Yeah. I, I want to I wanna try something new. And a big part of my driving uh, self as an artist is about trying something that I either, either never seen before or trying a material I've never used before that I get really excited about its potential. And also about the idea of always being an amateur. Like what's the most exciting moment in anybody's creative life is when they're not good at something because it's so challenging and you get so hyped up about the potential at least I do like yeah, I, love, yeah. I love innovating and I don't know I, I just get really excited with like oh what I wonder what the what that thing what I could do with that thing so it, it has kind of led me to a lot of down a lot of different paths yeah it sounds like you you need to be constantly fascinated and that fascination continues to drive you yeah, for sure. Because um, there's also like a I'm um, I guess it's so much of what I do is kind of self generated in that I'm looking inward through the like after you know I take in tons. I'm a watcher and observer, and I'm thinking all the time. I live a lot of my life in my head, and so I'm I'm always thinking. All and I need to 
kind of process that stuff through my hands and through images. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I want to keep, I've always wanted, it's always been so important to me to have a really true voice to myself and not to an external set of, I mean, I guess I've never figured out the art for art's sake or art about art. You've never you know, figured it out? I guess I've never really been able to identify the um, a kind of compulsion in myself or a, a real interest in myself in the history of art and responding specifically to that history of art, even if it's just like modern art or, you know, a kind of movement in art and wanting to make art that responds to that legacy and that history. Well, I I do want to ask about that because you spoke very, I guess, lovingly about discovering punk rock and hardcore. And you mentioned that you went to various, uh, you know, art high school and, 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 and all, and, you know, OCAD and whatnot. But I, I didn't get a sense from you about that moment when art became something that sparked your interest and maybe even, seem like a viable <laughs> path for you to go down like can you describe that moment was there a particular artist or moment well, no because art has been just this incredibly organic process that began as a child for me like most people have a relationship to art all, almost all children have at some point a relationship to drawing right that's a very natural thing that all children do and i just never stopped and i um so for me, I feel like I was kind of identifying as a visual artist, and I was also recognized as a visual artist, which is oh, something okay. that you can hmm. never underestimate in in how a person will choose a path, even unconsciously for themselves, how a child will move towards a subject that they excel in because someone in school, a parent, some someone in passing has told them, oh, you're really good at that. And that often that's all, like just that subtle little thing is what will like can change a person's life um, because people do tend to, to go towards things as children that they're validated for and that they're recognized for. So, I mean, that probably had something to do with my path and that I, as a child, I was recognized that I had a drawing talent and I was encouraged at school and, you know, my parents weren't interested in the arts whatsoever, nor did they think that that was a real thing you could do in a life but they did you know as as many parents would be like oh yeah you can do like after school art classes or a saturday class just more like a babysitting thing so that kind of helped okay okay you know so i've always had that it was just like a given with me that i was you know and that's why i went to that school wexford was to go do the visual art program and i was surprised by the music part right okay and did you what's the closest you've come to any relationship or association with more commercial work or some kind of some kind of utilization of your skill set towards something that might be as i say more commerce based oh i've had all sorts of relationship to that because i've done portrait i think my mom was actually just relating this anecdote that was quite outrageous i think when i was something like 12 or 13 someone in the neighborhood uh, commissioned me to do a, a portrait in watercolor of their children. Oh. And I so I had enough of a small reputation in my small suburban 
kind of shitty neighborhood that someone actually thought that I could do a painting of their children, which I did, and which my mother said she was really embarrassed because I charged $200. Did you get $200? And she said I got it. Now, I have no <laughs> memory of this, but I am aghast because that's incredibly mercenary and also it has a lot of feeling. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of like self-worth. That's a real like, I am an important artist and I will charge you 200. I was like 12 years old. How did you come up with that rate? I have no idea. <laughs> There's more money than I probably had ever seen in my life. I don't come from a family that has a lot of money or ever like throws it around. So that's amazing. When did quite you... amazing that I had some kind of? I might have just been like uh, greedy. Like I'm going to get as much as I can. I don't know what I was thinking because it's quite out, out outrageous. But um, I do remember working really hard, and I would love to see that drawing now because I bet it's just obscenely weird like i can't imagine that i got the proportions right or do they like it i i like my memory is so poor okay you don't even remember if you got paid i know they didn't reject it and my mom says i got the money but her memory isn't that great either so she my mom might have said 200 bucks and for all i know it was 20 i'm just (laughs) believing what she's saying right now but you know it it sounds like there could be a ring of truth i i don't know so anyways i did as a young person and of course when you're like young you you tend to like just kind of it takes a long time to make your way in the world as a person and realize like what you really want to do and how your principles and values are going to play out and what you can control and what you can. And I think like in your teen years, you're also given a ton of pressure of like, this is, you need to make a, you know, a choice about how you're going to make a living and stuff. Yeah. So I thought, well, wow, if I could like do portraits or something, or if I could uh, do something where I could sell my work and in, in that way, like that would be great. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I could make my art and make some like a living. Anyways, I didn't like I I did different things like when I was maybe in my 21 or something 22 I'd go travel and like there were I I remember being up in Dawson City and being really young and doing watercolors and selling them to tourists and then I did pet portraits when I was young too like right. where I get people you know paint their dead cat or whatever and then um I stumbled on the field of illustration through meeting some people that uh, were working in publication and newspapers and magazines that were actually really good. And they recognized my work as an artist. And they, so I didn't have to go at it through the illustration first. They were like, Oh, we like your art. 
would you consider doing an illustration for like this interesting story? And I'm always, I've, I'm a huge reader and a consumer of fiction, nonfiction. And so the idea of responding and interpreting writing was really natural and exciting to me. I love that idea. So I started illustrating in my late twenties and early thirties. So I was working for Saturday Night magazine that was around at the time and McLean's magazine and the national post and globe mail, and like oh, different, okay. wow. yeah, different, okay. yeah, different publications that I was, doing like the national post I had kind of some semi-regular work with. And, and so that really helped supplement my life as an artist, as a young person. Okay. That's, that's where I was going with this. I just curious about, you know, when you first got a sense that you might have a livelihood stemming from your imagination and ability, basically that's. Yeah. And that it came first out of more of a sense of like, Oh, I will interpret something, uh, that, that in use my skills to create an image that either people would like to see that, you know, a commission kind of thing, or, uh, in terms of illustration, there's a lot, there's like a lot of skill and there's a lot of interpretation, interpretive sensitivity that you have to bring to that. There's, it's not just as simple as drawing a picture. You have to kind of condense that essay into its you know essence and yeah. create an image that even adds to it you know and and kind of th- like thoroughly brings the meaning to the fore and you know sometimes with humor sometimes with whatever like some kind of subtle like frisson you know so there's a that's a really cool and interesting i respect the really good illustrators hugely um and also the craft of drawing has gone into comics and illustration. Like that's where you're going to see skit drawn drawing and like the real skill of drawing is, yeah. comics and com- you know, posters and illustration and graphic arts and stuff. That's really respected that kind of, and in contemporary art, people don't care if you can draw. It's actually kind of a liability if you can draw because it's for a, quite a long time, this kind of faux naive trend has been happening where it, you don't want to look like you're trying too hard and you don't want to look like you're conventionally uh, skilled in a traditional sense, you know, that's seeming like a really old fashioned and uptight and irrelevant thing. So, but, you know, who, it's such a sad thing to throw away because there's so much joy and and wonder in in someone that's really committed to the craft of drawing and uh, so i go to the contemporary comic world to see that stuff anyways blah blah yeah no i i hear you i think you you alluded to this earlier and so i think i know that the answer to this question is going to be no but i'm going to ask it anyway and, and hopefully you can maybe expand upon it but my question is is art valued highly enough in canada and North America. As I say, I think you may have already said that it isn't, but can you expand upon why you think that might be? I think it's really pretty simple. We're just a very young, um, in terms of the colonizers in this country, we haven't been around that long to develop our own uh, sense of of visual art culture. Hmm. Um, Or, you know, and then of course there's so many different forms of art culture, whether it's theater, dance, or, you know, whatever, like a, a million types of things that are invented uh, for us to express ourselves. I feel like art and contemporary art in Canada, there's very strong and small pockets, and there's, you know, commercial realm, there's museum realm, and there's artist-run centers, which are really great. Um, but in terms of the mainstream population and what 
we identify with in terms of values and education in primary schools, say, where kids learn, it's really, really marginalized and on the fringes of yeah. a, a important part of our identity. And we don't, we don't recognize it. I mean, maybe some people could name the group of seven or something as like, as that they're Canadian artists and that that was art that was made. But, um, we, that still mainstream, like, I mean, what it's people come here from, I mean, okay, first it's so complicated, right? <laughs> because like first we're, we're settlers, right? And so if you want to talk about ancient, like Canadian art, that's going to be first nation work, right? Yeah. But no one's taught about that. No one, no one except first nation people that have had the traditions passed on themselves knows anything about it. It's not taught in schools. It's a total specialized field. So we don't get to know about that ancient history that is, that existed. And then we're all immigrants after that. And we come from everywhere all over the world. So we all bring our own ancient artistic traditions with us if we have them and if we pay attention and care about that stuff. So it's just so diversified. There's no unified voice and in like I feel pretty sad about the kind of things that people have tried to rally around as a Canadian uh, identity it's something that people scoff at outside of Canada and they should because you know it's really meager and superficial uh, the values especially right now politically Yeah. that are being touted as our Canadian, like what brings us together as Canadians are, is just crazy. And uh, so uh, a bit like bleak, weak and bleak. I'm, you try- know? Yeah, I'm trying to, trying to parse out some key uh, descriptors of what you're saying. And I, and I have kind of what I've gathered from what you just said has something to do with sort of, um, immaturity or lack of knowledge like it's some semblance of ignorance and maybe this has been devalued for so long that it's a it's and it's continuing to be depleted that it's it's really going to be a struggle to uh, present our work in an original and strong fashion at this point (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that you could say that there's, I mean, internationally, Canada does not have a strong presence in terms of the, like, I can only speak really for contemporary arts, because that's where I come from. So, I mean, I know that, you know, let's say literature, um, you know, Canadian literature has a much stronger kind of foothold internationally in terms of identity and people being able to recognize people that are participating and celebrating that voice, whatever that voice is, it's also quite diverse, but it's at least has a little bit more unification and identification. Yeah. Uh, contemporary art, not so much at all. Uh, the closest thing is like the Vancouver School, which is something that internationally it is recognized, the kind of photo conceptualists that have come out of that region. Otherwise, it's very regional uh, and kind of remote. And in terms of what we as a, you know, I, I just think I, it's so hard to group Canada together in any way whatsoever. It's crazy. We're just so diverse. Of But... Um, there's no education in the public schools, basically, because I think we're still a very pragmatic kind of resource economy mentality where people come here. If they're immigrating here, they're hoping to God for a better life. And that just means some money to send their kids on to school so that they, they those kids can be educated and make money and yeah. stable lives where there's peace and there's no war on the 
in the, on the soil, you know, so the people are escaping trauma, they're coming here for stability and safety and peace, and they're looking for a little bit of money so they're not starving, so it's a better, like, first world economy. They want kind of, they're not coming, no one comes to Canada for, like, some ancient culture, and people that also, especially, that come here are not being educated about the ancient people that that started here, that it's their place. So even that is not for new people or the people that have been here for a couple hundred years. So yeah, we don't have, you know, we don't have it in the, the public school system from the young kids on. Well, you're going, it's, it's, it's a, it's a vaguely dangerous road you're leading us down in terms of this idea of practicality versus art. Well, it just sort of, it, it, um, it puts art in a weird place in terms of its cultural importance yeah exactly because it's seen as an elite pursuit as opposed to like an integral uh common joy that everybody should participate in you know um i think but that's not something you subscribe to you're saying that's just the perception of it you don't think it's some elite thing that people you you think i assume you would believe that people coming to this country should be immersed in whatever art is here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not perpetuating that. I'm just saying that, like mainstream. I mean, you know, I'm, I guess I'm speaking more in terms of like who is representing Canada on the world stage in terms of politics, and that's you know the conservative government and the kind of platform and the, like a lot of conservative kind of thinking that can sometimes happen in in smaller regions where you're outside of urban centers where you're thinking that art is just something for city people in another country like it's not yeah. even relevant it doesn't doesn't help us put food on the table it doesn't help us get through the day it doesn't help us like get a job or you know that that real kind of pragmatic thing that canadians can be guilty of is a like in just ge- deep generalization i'm talking about yeah, yeah. So many people here that have such beautiful and deep relationships to the idea of their own personal culture and ritual and 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 art no, and I appreciate your insight on that because uh, I think that you you know this situation and this this predicament, I suppose, rather well. And uh, so that's why I wanted to ask you about it. Now, I, I do want to ask about silence, dedication, and uh, music for silence as well. Um, I'm sorry, it's silent dedication, not silence dedication. I got yeah, the two. I conflated. That's the name of the film, yeah. Silent dedication, right? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, but can you talk about the connection between the project Music for Silence and, and this film, Silent Dedication, that you're presenting in Guelph? Yeah. The, this film um, I made as part of the project that I presented in Venice in 2013. And the project in Venice was called Music for Silence. And when I first you know, part of the process of doing that exhibition is that one of the first things you do is you go to Venice and you spend a week or two there and you kind of walk around, you get to, I've been there before this, so it wasn't the first time I'd visit the place, but you go to the, the grounds of the Giardini where the, like all the, uh, many of the buildings are that the art uh, is presented in and you go to the Canadian pavilion Canada has a pavilion and you go there and you visit it's like a site visit where you look at the architecture and you walk around the space and you try to envision how you might want to uh, interact with it or change it or Uh what what you could bring there right and so for me this uh, I can't I could not go into that circumstance without being so hyper hyper conscious of um, 
the privilege attached to it uh, and not in some kind of just shameful, guilty way, but really, really aware of like this, I get to have a voice in and how many people get to have voices publicly and get to kind of present their own like internal worldview or their cosmology, you know, this is so incredibly rare, but also how can you be active in it? Like how can you function? How can you make something that's useful and in a really beautiful way, but like something that is, uh, you know, it meant so much to me to try to make a project that engaged with the kind of elemental experience of being human, wanting to be witnessed, wanting to participate, and all the people that don't get that chance. But also, what are the, I also was really thinking about the universality of the idea that you're there amongst all of these countries and all these cultures, and all these languages. How could I make something that would speak to all these people, regardless of verbal or written language that they don't share. Right. So I started just thinking about the ideas of silence because visual art is a silent form. And for me, it's always been about not speaking and not writing, but image and the body and, and making and, and kind of a language that didn't at all rest on words. And that it kind of is something that acts it can act with words, but it can act in between words. And it can, it really has like a different part of the mind that interprets it and understands it intuitively. And in some ways I've always um, identified a little bit more as a musician in a way, because I feel often when I make my work, it's more like in my imaginary mind, uh, like writing a song or something. And that I'm much more interested in how we, uh, internalize and hear music than how we kind of look at and interpret art so there's a lot of things going on in my mind obviously yeah but, you know it's it's complex thing so i was like well i i want to make this project about silence and i want to make it about the wonder of art being a silent language and how it can impact everybody no matter what language you speak but also that art is an ancient ancient form that all civilizations have participated in image making ritualistically in that it used to have a really important cultural foundation and necessity in community in with ancient people and we've kind of lost that in modern western world yeah it's more become something that's about unfortunately sometimes around status and around money and around glamour and around kind of a prestigious like elite us uh, and there, that again word again right but there is some of that right because it is not everybody understands and i'm very very conscious of this because i come from a place where people did not understand it they didn't have any value with it they didn't feel included by it they didn't feel like it had any it couldn't speak to them so i wanted to try to make something around all of that that was the kind of my thinking about it so I wanted to make a show that had pieces in it that were celebratory and pieces that were cautionary mm -hmm. around the idea of silence and silencing um, and the so way that you, you've spoken now I think uh, about the overall project right mm -hmm. you, yeah, that's the kind of basic thematic. And what I so what I did when I got there the first time was that I wrote, I did some automatic writing. I thought, if I could dedicate this exhibition, who would I who and who or what would I dedicate it to? Who do I want to make this work for? And who do I want to be thinking of when I make this work? Not speaking for anybody, but just 
thinking of people yeah. and making work with them in mind and things, you know, whatever in mind. And so I wrote a list, kind of a, what I thought in my head of some kind of like list, like a dedication list, you know, of who this work was for and what, what I was going to kind of um, dedicate this project to. And that became the central kind of thematic writing for me that I kept returning to throughout the process of making the work. And in the end, it became a very important piece of writing that was automatic too. I never edited it. It was just my first piece of writing and it was like a list. Um, The film that I'm showing at Kazoo is uh, originally intended to be a 16 millimeter film. I, I, I wanted it to be super eight, but you can't make a loop canister for super eight film. It's too small. Oh, okay. It's too tiny. And, and, uh, so you have to use a larger reel of film. That 16 millimeter was the next bump up. And I want it, everything I work in is kind of analog and old school technology, which I'm interested in the way it's, you know, it's kind of obsolete and it has a life, span like a body and it has a mortality you know and it has something really beautiful about the limitations of it and I love the sound of the clicking 16 millimeter film I always remembered that as a child those old projectors you know so I made this film and I knew from the get-go that I would use the text but I didn't want to have a big didactic panel of that text on the wall because this wasn't exhibition I wanted to not to have written language or words in I wanted it to be silent okay and how that came to me really naturally was in working uh, with sign language for the deaf and that was so natural because I'd studied it and I'd known for years that when the right moment came up, I really wanted to try to make a project that incorporated sign language and incorporated deaf culture, um, which has just been a longstanding interest of mine for various kind of poetic reasons and, and also like heroic reasons, because I think it's just one of the most amazing, um, modern languages that have ever been created, you know, this gestural language. Yeah so beautiful and I've always associated it with choreography with dance and with visual art um so because I'd studied it and because I had some connections in in um the deaf community in Toronto and in Winnipeg I felt comfortable um saying I would like to work with uh a deaf person who will translate this particular text into sign language, Canadian sign language, because sign language is regional. And we're going to have this person is going to be the kind of central character of my exhibition. And they're going to almost be like the guide of the exhibition um, in that they'll be talking to people that are coming through the pavilion and the show, pointing at, pointing to various parts, you know, as a film, I had the setup so that the woman, Beth, that was the performer would be actually pointing and kind of looking around the room. Like she was in the space with the viewer, looking at the different sculptures and the installations and talking about um, the premise for the show, which was just her translation of my list of dedication. Okay. That's so that's what it is. It's just her, <laughs> you know, it's it's her talking, it's just her translating that dedication list, uh, you know, which started out in as words and ended up, ended up as this kind of incredibly beautiful gestural language. And in this way, too, it turns the tables because there was there's no subtitles. Um, this is a, a piece where you're coming in, you're encountering sign language, unless you know sign, you are not going to know what she's saying. Right. But 
the kind of humanity in the facial expression, which is a part of like a crucial part of the grammar of sign language is in the, um, your facial expression and obviously the body language and the gestures of the hands. That stuff is like music. If you open yourself to it, you will feel something watching a deaf person speak because so much of it is happening on the face and the body and that is a shared universal experience. It's not, it's, that sounds really intriguing, and I, I can't wait to see it. Is this a film that will be play? like, will it screen a few times, or is it just screening? Well, this is the thing, Vish, is that if you make a film in 60 millimeter, black and white, high contrast, you know, film, yeah. real film, then the way I screened it in Venice was, you know, I had a very complex and fussy little loop canister custom made to hold the film so it looped constantly now looping film anybody will tell you has a shelf life because of just dust and grit in the air will get on the film and go into the contraption of the looper and the projector and will start to scratch the film and break it down and erode it so after like a week or two weeks or three weeks depending on how dirty the space is you have to swap it out for a new one um projectors incredibly fussy you have to have someone on hand all the time to be tweaking them and maintaining them they're old they're they're really complex right and you got the looper that's really complex and is prone to breaking itself then you've got these reels of 60 millimeter film that you have to have copies of because you're you're they're you're wasting you know you're going through them at quite a rate and and then six-month exhibition, say, up in Venice. It is uh, so antiquated now, the processing of black and white 60-millimeter film. There's only one place in... Uh, there's nowhere that I know of in Canada that's doing this kind of high-con specific film processing. It's California. You have to fly there. You have to sit there with them <laughs> right. and your original film and kind of guide them and how you want that transferred onto a new copy um in person and it's an outrageous expense and it's so complicated because i'm not a film person i don't make films i i worked with an incredible filmmaker named john price who's a shooter and an editor he hand processed this film in his home oh wait a minute sorry you don't make you're not a filmmaker how is this your film this film okay this i wrote this film i completely art directed it i had the total vision of it but i don't work a camera Oh, I see what you're saying. You've, but you've made other, you've I, made I other films, right? Yeah, I could. All my Super 8 cameras, I did completely. Uh, uh, like you know, I I borrow Super 8 camera, I'd buy the film, I'd have it processed. I'd, you know, I'd do the whole thing top to bottom. Uh-huh. But 60 millimeter is a completely other thing. Like you have to know how to work that camera, and I don't have, and I also didn't have the time to learn such a thing. It only makes sense that you would hire a really great camera person. So I did the like the entire film is mine, and I directed it, and I even was like standing behind that camera, you know, making sure every single frame and shot was just how I wanted it to be. But I didn't work the camera myself, and I didn't process the film. Um, John decided to hand process it because he's incredibly technically skilled right, and right. he talked very detailed about exactly the look I wanted. 
but then there's this complicated thing of like transferring it from the like the kind of original film into the copies and you lose a little bit in the copying process and then we're talking about like we I had six made that he hand processed if I want to get them made like like copied it's like then I'm talking about going to California or one of those other places because I can't get John uh, Price to hand process every film I need in my life. So basically all this to say it's too expensive and too complicated to uh, show in the original 16 millimeter format on a projector with a looper, unless I'm working with some museum that's got this gazillion crazy dollar budget, which I don't usually. Sure. So, so, so how does it work at Kazoo? Just, shit. I had to transfer it to video. If I wanted to make this something that I could share with people and have it totally free and that I could show this anywhere because it's a political work too. You know, this isn't something just for a really expensive museum and the people that might go in there. This is something I want to be able to share with anybody and everybody. This is about accessibility and inclusivity. So you have to choose your form when you're getting inclusive. And the form is video, unfortunately, because I hate video, to be completely true. (laughs) Like, for me, for what I do, it's not the right format for me. I'm, my my work is much more visually uh, romantic and poetic, and it needs the real light bulb shining through celluloid, or it needs an overhead projector with light being projected on a mirror. It doesn't work digital. Digital breaks things down. You see the pixelated thing and you're dealing with this technology that's that's really like limiting and frustrating. So all that said, that's a bit of a complaint session. But <laughs> what I can bring is I can bring this film and the idea of the film and I can share the film um, in a place like Kazoo and in this uh, gallery, which is kind of the world's smallest gallery. Yeah. You know, and it's not about like money. This is, doesn't have anything to do with commerce. Like this is about sharing uh, Beth Hutchison, who's this extraordinary woman and who did such a beautiful job translating that text. And kind of looking at her and watching her perform it, even though it's very high con 16 millimeter film, which is uh, blows things out and has a very, it's a very grainy kind of thing. It's not about detail. It's a, and it's also she's supposed to be kind of a ghost like figure too, like a phantom. So there's a there's this beautiful thing where she's just glowing and she all she is is two hands and a face. There's no body. She's disembodied. Oh, okay. Yes. And, and so, uh, again, does this screen <laughs> a single time or does it screen? No, it's on a loop. And, and what's really lovely is that I've always intended it. And as it was shown in Venice and as it's shown here at, at, at um, for Kazoo, it's a, it, she's, Beth goes through the text in real time. Uh-huh. And then it loops into a second performance where it's half time. So she goes into slow motion and you can really watch that gesture and it becomes incredibly powerful um, for me. And especially when you see it in the original film version. (laughs) Well, I can't, I I can't wait to see this thing. I'm I'm excited (laughs) to see it in whatever format it's here in. And that that sounds really, really cool. I want to see it. Um, Before we wrap up, you're also, you work a lot with Christine Fellows. Yeah. Um, who's uh, I'm a fan of and a friend of, and she's been on the show. Uh, I'm just curious about what's co- you, you've been working with her recently, and there's more to come, right? You're working on a project together? 
yeah, Christine and I have got a new show this year, and that's been a really big part of my last year is uh, creating that with her. We've been collaborating for 10 years now, and we've done all, all sorts of crazy things together and she's my you know kind of one of the my best friends in the world and I love working with her very very much and this piece was uh commissioned originally by the Northern Arts and Cultural Center in Yellowknife Northwest Territories last fall to create a new work to bring um and tour through outreach communities in the Northwest Territories all the way up to the Arctic and back and in little tiny planes and that was an amazing and crazy experience um wonderful and so we made it for that, and then we just started to kind of evolve it and tweak it a little bit, and we're touring it all this next year. So we've already done probably five or six other shows, um, and our next performance will be at the uh, middle of May okay. at the Banff, Banff Art Center. Then we'll go up to Lethbridge, and then in June, uh, on the 20th and 21st, we'll be performing as part of the Luminato Festival here. And we'll be at the On Wave Theater in Harborfront uh, for two shows then. Wow. And then we'll carry on from there. So that will be the kind of Ontario. There's something in Ottawa, too, as a part of Chamberfest, but I don't know how many people are going to get to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a few people. Why wouldn't they get to it? They can get to it. Can it's they? True. I don't they know. They can. People can get to anything. You're talking about, you took it to the, the what did you take it to, the Yukon Territory? Yeah, I, not Yukon. Well, I did. I we've also gone up to the Yukon, <laughs> but yeah, Dawson City. Probably the the furthest has gone is Inuvik. Oh, Okay. Yeah, which is an amazing town. I love that place. It was fantastic. What a place. Um, but yeah, like I guess uh, Ottawa Chamber Fest. I think we're performing at the National Gallery, and that will be in August, and then Newfoundland after that. But Luminato is here and on, you know, a little bit more regional for Guelph and Torontoners, which is kind right. of what I'm talking to. That's who I'm thinking about right now. So it's Spell to Bring Lost Creatures Home is the name of it, right? Yeah. Okay. So people can uh, figure that out too. All right. Well, Sherry, this has been a, a real pleasure. And Beach, nice blabbing with you. Thanks for being uh, indulging my intense verbosisness. <laughs> That's my, it's my pleasure. Is there... I'm trying to think. Well, first of all, for people who want more information about Sherry, they can go to SherryBoyle.com, and that's S H. Yeah, it's kind of a little placeholder website. S H A R Y B O Y L E. That's right. Just I wanted to make sure people know how to spell Sherry, and uh, yeah, you can do that, and you can learn more about her there. Yeah. Uh, normally, I go out on a song, but you're not a musician per se. I mean, not anymore. I mean, is there a song that makes sense by one of the people we that we both know that would make sense for anything we talked about? Oh, yeah, like, uh, boy, I wish you had given me this uh, <laughs> before, and then I would have thought about it, because I'm terrible. Anything on the spot, I'm not good at improvising. Sure. I think you're pretty good. I think you're pretty good. I, it's fine. We don't have to. It just makes it awkward. Why don't we just, we'll just say goodbye. You uh, could say anything. You could you could um, put on a Buffy St. Marie. No, song. no, can't. I was thinking, like, Christine would give us permission to play a song. Oh my God! Yeah, of course. At any time, you could play Christine song, but for for this, like, she hasn't recorded any of the stuff really that we've done together for years because it's been so project specific, and she hasn't made albums about it. But yeah. she just did a really beautiful um, album called "The Burning Daylight," and you could present something. You could play something off that. There's this, does anything make sense for your project? Yeah, there's a song that she um, plays in our show. 
and uh, I never remember the titles of Christie's. So. <laughs> uh, hang on, let me just pull it it's up so here. Shameful. Well, is it is it on trail? Is it Call of the Wild? Is it Circling keep, Darkness? Keep going. The Sounding of the Call. Go, keep going. To build a fire. No. Credo, White Silence. White uh, Credo, White Silence. That's the one. Yeah. Well, I bet she's not going to care if we play this song. She would love it. Yeah, okay. So this is Christine Fellows, who collaborates uh, a lot with Sherry Boyle and is doing so in the uh, near future with Credo White Silence from her excellent, uh, I guess it 2013 already? No. Did this record come out in 2013? I don't know. More like 2014. I, I feel like it was 2014. 2014 yeah. album Burning Daylight. I'm just looking at what my, my iTunes says it's 2013. So I don't know. If iTunes. Just ignore that. I'm going to ignore that. Uh, Sherry, this was great. Thank you for your time, and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you at Kazoo Fest. See you Kazoo. Okay, take care. I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather my spark burn out in a brilliant. I would rather be a meteor every atom 
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.